A very warm hello and welcome to this latest Science Custom podcast, created in partnership with Bold, the blog on learning and development. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'm delighted to invite you to join me for this series of podcast interviews with outstanding researchers who are attempting to make positive changes in the lives of children and adolescents by seeking practical solutions for a complex world. Apart from this common goal, they are also all recipients of the prestigious Klaus J. Jacobs Research Prize, a 1 million Swiss francs grant awarded by the Jacobs Foundation that recognizes exceptional achievements in the field of child and youth development. My guest today is Dr. Greg Duncan. Greg is Distinguished Professor of Education at the University of California, Irvine, where he studies how school entry skills and behaviors influence children's later school achievement and attainment, and how increasing income inequality can affect schools and influence children's life chances. Greg, I'm so pleased that you could join me today to talk about your work and some of the research that you're doing. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, you're an economist by training. Can you tell me how you came to study poverty and childhood development? I began uh, my career at the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan, working on a uh, large survey project that actually continues today that was following a very large and representative sample of American families every year, studying economic change, demographic change. was started way back in the 1960s as a product of the war on poverty, where the interest was not just in counting the poor, but in following all the dynamics of uh, of economic and uh, demographic life. And I worked on that study for 25 years and spent quite a bit of time understanding the dynamics of income change. But then I started wondering about the implications of income instability and persistent poverty and so forth on children and child development. So I began to collaborate with developmental psychologists and have really embraced the kind of synergies that exist between economics and child development and neuroscience. So what unique skills or viewpoints does your economics background allow you to bring to studying this particular field? Economists don't really think about child development in a very serious way, but developmental psychologists obviously do. I think the comparative advantage of economists in thinking about poverty and child development is more on the policy side. Economists have a set of skills when they consider alternative poverty policies, things like cost-benefit analyses, that I think are very helpful in applying the insights that developmental psychologists have and insights from the evaluations of interventions that might be developed as they affect child development. I've heard some people say that economists are looking really just at the numbers and maybe lack some of the compassion that other researchers might have, maybe other social scientists. What would you say to those folks? That's a good question. You know, I think analytic rigor implies a certain ability to distance yourself from a particular problem. I think what motivates many economists who work in this area is indeed passion, passionate concern for the consequences of increasing inequality in, uh, in our society, for example, and the consequences of uh, children in families that are left behind by economic growth. That passion is certainly present, but not so much in the way economists analyze 
particular problems and solutions to those problems. Greg, I'd like to dive uh, a little bit deeper into some of your research now. Can you talk about some of the ways that living in poverty affects children? Yes. The economics and developmental psychology and neuroscience, particularly the neuroscience, have developed understanding fairly recently of what the consequences, potential consequences of growing up poor might be. And the neuroscience evidence, I think, is some of the most interesting, where the consequences of early deprivation of various sorts can affect, potentially affect the way that uh, children's brains get wired up, the way that their stress systems are, uh, are set up, the way that their immune systems are set up. Much of the research has been with, uh, with animals and not children for obvious ethical reasons, but it's possible to have a, a model of early deprivation where you see consequences for lifelong health and other aspects of development. So we need to understand to what extent that carries over into human populations and indeed to what extent uh, the kind of deprivation that advanced countries children can experience affects their lifelong prospects. You're carrying out a, a study called Baby's First Years, and I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about what the study is and what you hope to learn from the research. Glad to. Uh, we've been at this study, planning it for six years, and now we're finally um, in the midst of uh, collecting data about it. The idea is very simple. If you really want to answer the question about whether income is the active ingredient behind all of the correlational evidence between growing up poor and uh, poor child outcomes, school outcomes, health outcomes, and so forth, the best way of doing that is with a random assignment experiment with a clinical trial. So we are conducting a clinical trial. We've recruited a thousand mothers who've just given birth in hospitals in four cities, uh, New York, uh, New Orleans, Omaha, and the Twin Cities. And in the hospital, we're asking them if they're interested in participating in a study. And if they agree to that, then we randomly assign them to either receive a fairly large income supplement, $333 a month, or a much smaller income supplement, $20 a month for the first 40 months of their children's lives. And the idea is to follow these families and children and visit them at age one, when their kids are age two, age three, and maybe beyond, to see to what extent uh, children who are in families with this higher income supplement do better in terms of their development, in terms of their cognitive development, in terms of their socio-emotional development, and also to what extent Family processes like expenditures, parenting sensitivity, stress, untoward events that might happen to families like utility cutoffs and evictions and things like that. To what extent differences in the family processes between the high gift group and the low gift group are related to the whatever differences we find in the child outcomes. It's really the first study of its kind in the United States where we will be able to determine with a clinical trial to what extent a relatively generous $4,000 a year income supplement affects 
the way families function and uh, the way kids develop. Now, this money that you're uh, providing to the families, are there any requirements for them to get it? Are there any strings attached? Do they need to, for instance, have a job or be looking for a job? No, not in our study. We wanted to have the results be as generalizable as possible. If you look over safety net programs in the United States, things like uh, SNAP, the food stamp program, it's geared toward food purchases. Housing vouchers, another program, are geared toward uh, housing. We wanted to not restrict how the money is used in any way so that we could have the broadest possible set of implications for policies that would be changing the amount of resources that might be available to families. In fact, the federal government and state governments are making decisions all the time when they make their budget plans about the generosity of any number of programs that affect either favorably or adversely the the safety net benefit levels that are being applied to, that are being made available to low-income families. And uh, we want our results to be as uh, useful as possible for those kind of debates. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were possibly going to follow these children after three years of age. Is that something that you think is going to be feasible? Uh, Are you still looking for grant funding to do that? Yeah, we're always looking for grant funding and Mm -hmm. we're all set for the first three years. If we do find we're very close to getting our age one results. Now we just finished our uh, data collection for age one. If we start to find impacts, then you could argue that there would be great value in continuing to follow these, these families. Our dream, you know, because we want to make our results as generalizable as possible for policy discussions, there's no policy like a child allowance that stops at age three. So suppose we were thinking about an age six follow-up. Age six is a good time because kids are in school. We can find out about the success of the kids in making them transition to school and so forth. And having that data collection, but coupled with the continuation of the benefits beyond 40 months, say to 80 months, would give us a much better picture that would be more useful for policy about knowing whether a persistent stream of $4,000 a year higher payments would benefit children by age six and uh, and change the kind of family processes that we're measuring as well. So Greg, I have just uh, one final question for you that I'm asking all of the scientists that I'm interviewing. And that is, uh, how do you see your work having a measurable impact in the lives of children and, and how can this be assessed? That is a great question. You know, I've spent some time on various National Academies uh, committees, and one of the things that always comes up is, how do we measure impact? It's very difficult because you can measure a number of people who look at reports or cite articles. You can try to monitor social media. But I think impact really comes from conversations that people have after they've been exposed to ideas that that they then pass on and so forth. The House recently passed another round of uh, of stimulus that included a one-year child allowance, very similar to what our committee recommended and very similar to what our uh, experiment is testing. So it's really the first time that there has been a, a serious proposal for the kind of child allowance that committee was 
presenting as a viable way of, of addressing child poverty. Greg, I, I really appreciate your thoughts on that. Thank you once again for being with me and uh, best of luck with the research. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to thank our podcast audience for joining us today. If you'd like to send us your feedback or suggestions, please send an email to custompodcast, or one word, at aaas.org. For more podcasts in this series, please visit the blog on learning and development website by going to bold.expert. Again, thank you so much to Dr. Greg Duncan and to the Jacobs Foundation for making this series possible. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening.